Section 21 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Albert Hubbard. Chapter Alfred R. Wallace, Part 1. Alfred R. Wallace. A muck is an innovation which I do not recommend. It consists in letting go when things get too bad and doing damage with tongue, hands, and feet. It is the tantrum carried to its logical conclusion. I saw one instance where a henpecked husband ran amuck and killed or wounded seventeen people before he himself was killed. It is the national and therefore the honorable mode of committing suicide among the natives of Salibs, and is the fashionable way of escaping from their difficulties. A man cannot pay. He is taken for a slave, or has gambled away his wife or child into slavery. He sees no way of recovering what he has lost, and becomes desperate. He will not put up with such cruel wrongs, but will be revenged on mankind and die like a hero. He grasps his knife, and the next moment draws out the weapon and stabs a man to the heart. He runs on with bloody Chris in his hand, stabbing every one he meets. Amuck, amuck, then resounds through the streets. Spears, Chris's, knives, guns, and clubs are brought out against him. He rushes madly forward, kills all he can, men, women, and children, and dies, overwhelmed by numbers amid all the excitement of a battle. Alfred Russell Wallace in the Malay Archipelago Alfred R. Wallace The question of how this world and all the things in it were made has, so far as we know, always been asked and volunteers have at no time been slow about coming forward and answering. For this service, the volunteer has usually asked for honors, and also exemption from toil, more or less unpleasant. He has also demanded the joy of riding in a coach, being carried in a palanquin, and sitting on a throne clothed in purple vestments trimmed with gold lace or costly furs. Very often the volunteer has also insisted on living in a house larger than he needed, having more food than his system required, and drinking decoctions that are costly, spicy, and peculiar, all of which luxury has been paid for by the people who are told that which they wish to hear. The success of the volunteer lies in keeping one large ear close to the turf. Religious teachers have ever given their people a cosmogony that was adapted to their understanding. Who made it? God made it all. How long a time? Six days. And then followed explanations of what God did each day. Over against the volunteers with a taste for power and fine corkscrew discrimination, there have been at rare intervals men with a desire to know for the sake of knowing. They were not content to accept any man's explanation. The only thing that was satisfying to them was the consciousness that they were inwardly right. 
loyalty to the god within was the guiding impulse of their lives in the past such men have been regarded as eccentric unreliable and dangerous and the volunteers have ever warned their congregations against them indeed until a very few years ago they were not allowed to express themselves openly laws have been passed to suppress them and dire penalties have been devised for their benefit laws against sacrilege heresy and blasphemy still ornament our statute books but these invented crimes that were once punishable by death are now obsolete or exist in rudimentary forms only and manifest themselves in a refusal to invite the guilty party to our four o'clock this hot intent to support and uphold the volunteers in their explanations of how the world was made is a universal manifestation of the barbaric state and is based upon the assumption that god is an infinite george the fourth six hundred years before christ anaximander the greek taught that animal life was engendered from the earth through the influence of moisture and heat and that life thus generated gradually evolved into higher and different forms all animals once lived in the water but some of them becoming stranded on land put forth organs of locomotion and defense through their supreme resolve to live anaximander also taught that man was only a highly developed animal and his source of life was the same as that of all other animals man's present high degree of development having gradually come about through growth from very lowly forms anaxagoras the schoolmaster of pericles also made similar statements and then we find him boldly putting forth the very startling idea that between the highest type of greek and the lowest type of savage there was a greater difference than between the savage and the ape he also taught that the earth was the universal mother of all living things animal and vegetable and that the fecundation of the earth took place from minute unseen germs that floated in the air according to modern science anaxagoras was very close upon the trail of truth but there were only a very few who could follow him and it took the combined eloquence and tact of pericles to keep his splendid head in the place where nature put it and pericles himself was compromised by his leaning toward darwinism every man who speaks expresses himself for others we succeed only as our thought is echoed back to us by others who think the same if you like what i say it is only because it is already yours moreover thought is a collaboration and is born of parents if a teacher does not get a sympathetic hearing one of two things happens he loses the thread of his thought and grows apathetic or he arouses an opposition that snuffs out his life and the dead they soon grow cold the recipe for popularity is to hunt out a weakness of humanity and then bank on it no one knows this better than your theological volunteer aristotle the father of natural history 
who early in life had a pegasus killed under him taught that the diversity in animal life was caused by a diversity of conditions and environment and he declared he could change the nature of animals by changing their surroundings this being true he argued that all animals were once different from what they are now and that if we could live long enough we would see that species are exceedingly variable to explain to child minds that a supreme being made things outright just as they are is easy but to study and in degree know how things evolved requires infinite patience and great labor it also means small sympathy from the indifferent whom the earth has spawned in swarms and the hatred of the volunteers who ride in coaches and tell the many what they wish to hear the volunteers drove aristotle into exile and from his time they had their way for two thousand years when john ray linnaeus and buffon appeared in seventeen hundred fifty five immanuel kant the little man who stayed near home and watched the stars tumble into his net put forth his theory that every animal organism in the world was developed from a common original germ in seventeen hundred ninety four erasmus darwin the grandfather of charles darwin inspired by kant and goethe put forth his book zoonomia wherein he maintained the gradual growth and evolution of all organisms from minute unseen germs these views were put forth more as a poetic hypothesis than as a well-grounded scientific fact so little attention was paid to erasmus darwin's books the fanciful accounts of creation put forth by moses three thousand years before were firmly maintained by the entrenched volunteers and their millions of devotees and followers but kant goethe karl von Beyer, and auguste de saint hilaire were now planting their outposts throughout the civilized world honeycombing christendom with doubt in the year eighteen hundred and fifty two herbert spencer had argued in public and in pamphlets that species have undergone changes and modifications through change of surroundings and that the account of noah and his ark with pairs of everything that flew crept or ran was fanciful and absurd as far as we cared to distinguish fact from fiction early in the year eighteen hundred and fifty eight charles darwin received from his friend alfred russell wallace a paper entitled on the tendency of varieties to depart indefinitely from the original type at this time darwin had in his hands of the secretary of the linnaeus society a paper entitled on the tendency of species to form varieties or the perpetuation of species and varieties by means of natural selection the similarity in title as well as the similarity in treatment of the wallace theme startled darwin he had been working on the idea for twenty years and had an immense mass of data bearing on the subject which he some day intended to issue in book form 
his paper for the linnaeus society simply summed up his convictions and now here was a man with whom he had never discussed this particular subject writing an almost identical paper and sending it to him of all men well did he pinch his leg and call in his wife asking her if he were alive or dead straight away he went to see sir charles lyell and sir joseph hooker both more eminent than he in the scientific world and laid the matter before them after a long conference it was decided that both papers should be read the same evening before the linnaeus society and this was done on the evening of july first eighteen hundred fifty eight darwin then decided to publish his origin of species which in his preface he modestly calls an abstract the publication was hastened by the fact that wallace was compiling a similar work after giving wallace full credit in his most interesting introduction and reviewing all that others had said in coming to similar conclusions darwin fired his shot heard round the world and no man was more delighted and pleased with the echoing reverberations than alfred russell wallace as he read the book in far-off australia the honor of discovering the law of evolution and lifting it out of the hazy realms of hypothesis and poetry and into the sunlight of science will ever be shared between charles robert darwin and alfred russell wallace who were indeed brothers in spirit and lovers to the end of their days in an insignificant village of england now famous alone because he began from there his explorations of the world alfred russell wallace was born in the year eighteen hundred twenty two he was one of a large family of the middle class where work is as natural as life and the indispensable virtues are followed as a means of self-preservation it is most unfortunate to attain such a degree of success that you think you can waive the decalogue and give nemesis the slip about the year eighteen hundred forty the railroad renaissance was on in england and young wallace alive alert active did his turn as apprentice to a surveyor chance is a better schoolmaster than design all boys have a taste for tent life and healthy youngsters not quite grown with ostrich digestions passing through the nomadic stage revel in hardships and count it a joy to sleep on the ground where they can look up at the stars and eat out of a skillet a little later we find alfred working for his elder brother in an architect's office gazing abstractedly out of the window betimes and wishing he were a ground squirrel fancy free on the heath amid the heather digging holes and thus avoiding introspection houses are prisons he said and sang softly to himself the song of the open road i think i know exactly how alfred russell wallace then felt from the touchstone of my own experience and i think i know how he looked too all confirmed by an east aurora incident some years ago one fine day in may i was helping excavate for the foundation of a new barn all at once i felt that someone was standing behind me looking at me 
i turned around and there was a tall lithe slender youth in a faded college cap blue flannel shirt ragged trousers and top boots my first impression of him was that he was a fellow who slept in his clothes a plain weary but when he spoke there was a note of self-reliance in his low well-modulated voice that told me he was no mendicant voice is the true index of character my name is wallace and i have a note to you from my father and he began diving into pockets and finally produced a ragged letter that was nearly worn out through long contact with a perspiring human form divine or partially so i seldom make haste about reading letters of introduction and so i greeted the young man with a word of welcome and gave him a chance to say something for himself he was english that was very sure and oxford english at that you see he began i am working just now over on the hamburg and buffalo electric line stringing wires i get three dollars a day because i'm a fairly good climber i wanted to learn the business so i just hired out as a laborer and they gave me the hardest job thinking to scare me out but that is what i wanted and he smiled modestly and showed a set of incisors so fine and strong as a dog's teeth i want to remain with you for a week and pay for my board in work he cautiously continued but what about your father mr wallace do i know him i think so he has written you several letters alfred russell wallace you could have knocked me down with a lady slipper i opened the letter and unmistakably it was from the great scientist introducing my baby boy i never met alfred russell wallace but i know if i should i would find him very gentle kindly and simple in all his ways as really great men ever are he would not talk to me in latin nor throw off technical phrases about great nothings and i would feel just as much as home with him as i did with old john burroughs the last time i saw him leaning up against a country railroad station in shirt-sleeves chewing a straw exchanging salutes with the engineer on a west shore jerk-water long john called the going one as he leaned out of the cab window so long bill and good luck to you was the cheery answer but still all of us have moments when we think of the world's most famous ones as being surely eight feet tall and having voices like foghorns i can do most any kind of hard work you know i was aroused from my little mental excursion and noticed my visitor had hair of a light yellow like a swede from hennepin county minnesota and that his hair was three shades lighter than his bronze face i can do any kind of work you know and if you will just loan me that pick and i handed him the pickaxe young wallace remained with us for a week asking for nothing doing everything even to helping the girls wash dishes that he was the son of a great man no one would have ever learned from his own lips in fact i am not sure that he was impressed with his father's excellence but i saw there was a tender bond between them for he haunted the post office morning noon and night looking for a letter from his father when it came he was happy as a woodchuck he showed me the letter it was nine finely written pages 
But to my disappointment, not a word about marsupials, siamons, or syndactyli, just news about John, William, Mary, and Benjamin, with references to chickens and cows, a new greenhouse, with a little good advice about keeping right hours and not overeating. The young man had spent three years at Oxford and was an electrical engineer. He was intent on finding out just as much about the secrets of American railroad construction as he possibly could. As for intellect, I did not discover any vast amount. Perhaps, for that matter, he didn't either. But we all enjoyed his visit, and when he went away, I presented him with a clean, second-hand flannel shirt and my blessing. From the appearance of the young man, I imagine that Alfred Russell Wallace, at twenty-one, was very much such a man as his son, who did such good work at the Royal Croft with pick and shovel. Alfred was earnest, intense, strong, and had a great deal of quiet courage that he was as unconscious of as he was of his digestion. He taught school, and to interest his scholars he would take them on botanical excursions. Then he himself grew interested and began to collect plants, bugs, beetles, and birds on his own account. By 1848, the confining walls of the school had become intolerable to Wallace, and he started away on a wild goose chase to Brazil, with a chum by the name of Henry Walter Bates, an ardent entomologist. Alfred had no money either, but Bates had influence, and he cashed it in by arranging with the curator of the British Museum that any natural history specimens of value which they might gather and send to him would be paid for. And so something like a hundred pounds was collected from several scientific men and handed over as advance payment for the wonderful things that the young men were to send back. They embarked on a sailing vessel that was captained by a kind kinsman of Bates, so the fare was nil in consideration of services rendered constructively. Arriving in Brazil, the young men began their collecting of specimens. They got together a very credible collection of bird's eggs and sent them back by the captain of the ship they came out on, this as an earnest of what was to come. Bates and Wallace were together for a year. Bates insisted on remaining near the white settlements, but Wallace wanted to go where white men had never been. So alone he went into the forest and for two years lived with the natives and dared the dangers of jungle fever, snakes, crocodiles, and savages. For a space of ten months he did not see a single white person. He collected nearly ten thousand specimens of birds, which he skinned and carefully prepared so they could be mounted when he returned to England. There was also a nearly complete Brazilian herbarium and a finer collection of bird's eggs than any museum of England could boast. The collection represented over three years' continuous toil. All the curious things were packed with great care and placed on board ship. And so the young naturalist sailed away for England, proud and happy, with his great collection of entomological, botanical, and ornithological specimens. But on the way the ship took fire, and the collection was either burned or ruined by soaking salt water. That the crew were their sole passenger escaped alive was a wonder. Wallace, on reaching England, 
was in a sorry plight being destitute of clothes and funds and there were unkind ones who did not hesitate to hint that he had only been over to ireland working in a peat bog and that his knowledge of brazil was gotten out of humboldt's books in one way wallace surely paralleled humboldt both lost a most valuable collection of natural history specimens by shipwreck several of the good men who had advanced money now asked that it be paid wallace set to work writing out his recollections the only asset that he possessed his book travel on the amazon and rio negro had enough romance in it so that it floated royalties paid over in crisp bank of england notes made things look brighter another book was issued called palm trees and their uses and proved that the author was able to view a subject from every side and say all that was to be said about it wallace on the palm is still a textbook the debts were paid and alfred russell wallace at thirty was square with the world the possessor of much valuable experience he also had five hundred pounds in cash with a reputation as a writer and traveller that no longer caused bookworms to sneeze having paid off his obligations he felt free again to leave england a thing he had vowed he would not do so long as his reputation was under a cloud this time he selected for a natural history survey a section of the world really less known than south america end of section twenty one